I gotta catch my breath for a second. Uh, I lost my breath one other time in uh, South Dakota. I was, I'll never forget it. I was uh, mountain biking in the middle of the night in the middle of winter, which I know that doesn't make any sense to any of you here, but you know, they groom trails. It's kind of like hard packed snow through the woods and up and down hills. And uh, you ride bikes with these fat tires. Maybe you've seen those around and it helps you kind of stay on top of the snow. If you get off the trail, you sink because <laughs> it's sometimes multiple feet of snow. Uh, but it was an incredible experience. A friend took me out in the middle of the night, and uh, beautiful, crystal clear night uh, in South Dakota, stars everywhere. I mean, there's almost no light pollution uh, anywhere to be seen. And so just to be out in the dark is just this incredible, surreal experience. Uh, but I was totally out of breath. We stopped about halfway uh, because it was hard work, and uh, we had these little thermoses of hot tea. Uh, we stopped, and we hiked down to a creek bed. Uh, it was just off the trail, and uh, just sat down, turned off our headlamps, and just enjoyed our tea for a moment, catching our breath under the stars. And it was this incredible experience. I remember just feeling so grateful uh, for how good God was and uh, to have this friend with me and uh, to be able to have that experience, which was new to me. It was really, really cool. Uh, and after a while, we thought, okay, let's get back to our bikes. And so uh, we flipped our headlamps back on and we started trudging up the hill, except there was a new set of prints in the snow around ours. And we took a little bit closer of a look. It was mountain lion tracks that weren't there before. And we had just been sitting down there by the river. Now, talk about eerie. Talk about a little bit scary, right? We had been just enjoying our time. And then what we didn't know was that there was a predator now, I don't know if he was looking for us. I don't know if he was just checking us out or she. You know, it could have been either. Uh, I don't know what was going on there, but all I know is once I realized the predator was there, it changed everything. We rode back to the car with like a renewed purpose. <laughs> like, let's get back to the car because we're out at night. And when he or she is out at night, he also has a purpose, right, to eat. So we rode with this renewed strength, okay? We got to get back to the car, A.S. AP. Well, this is kind of what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 uh, is introducing a predator to the paradise garden in Eden. It's while the first man and woman were thriving in God's paradise creation, there was a predator in pursuit of them. And then once he caught to them, everything changed. Genesis chapter 3. It's a turning point in our Bibles. It's where we've seen God's good creation. Everything is amazing. The men and women created in his image, bearing his image to the ends of the earth, enjoying his provision for their lives, enjoying his purpose for their lives as they worked and tended and cultivated the garden. But now Genesis 3 introduces another character, this predator, and everything changes. Now, they realize there's someone after them and ultimately succumb to the temptation he brings. Genesis 3 is the story of how what was and then ultimately what will be then became what is in our current experience of the world because of the introduction of sin into our lives. Sin simply defined is, is rebellion against God. That's really all it is, just rebellion against God. And this is what happens when the predator meets the humans in the Garden of Eden. It's much more, more though, than 
a story of what happened in the past. It's also a story of what happens every single time to all of us. It's a predictable pattern for how every human is tempted and rebels against the creator. This is what we're going to learn. So let's read it together in Genesis chapter 3. Just the first eight verses is where we'll be studying today. The words are going to be on your screen. I'll read it out loud for uh, you. If you're not following along in your own Bible, you can pay attention to the screens and, and walk with us there. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the, tree, the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. It was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The paradise garden, right? I mean, we're in the honeymoon phase. We just saw last week how man and woman became husband and wife, the picture of how God loves us through covenant marriage. And they're in this honeymoon phase in the garden when the predator emerges. So the serpent shows up in verse 1 and he says to Eve, now there's all kinds of questions that this raises for us that are good and fine questions about how the serpent shows up why can the serpent talk? Why is the serpent there? I mean, there's all kinds of questions that are fine, but the most important question in Genesis 3 isn't necessarily how the serpent shows up. It's why the serpent shows up. That's the most important question, and there's a hint to why in the Hebrew language here, a little bit of wordplay that's happening. If you back up into the verse, into the end of chapter 2, verse 25 of chapter 2, it says about the humans in their covenant marriage that they were naked and without shame. Now, that word naked in the Hebrew is the word arumim, arumim. But in verse 1, it introduces this predator, this serpent, into the equation. And it says that he was the most cunning. Now, that word cunning in the Hebrew is the word arum. And so what's happening is a little bit of poetry, a little bit of wordplay, where the author is putting these things side by side to show us that there is a connection. And so the serpent, who we find out later is our enemy, Satan, came to deceive the ones with no shame into a life of shame. To change their world from a world of innocence to a world of guilt. This is why the serpent shows up. That's his sinister purpose. And if we could shine a light on where we have gone astray from God, what we'll find is following and retracing our tracks, we will see a new set of tracks emerge where we can follow the same pattern of how this predator was after Adam and Eve. He's also after us. So this is the anatomy of rebellion. This is where it all begins to fall apart. Verse 1 uh, introduces this first aspect of it, that rebellion questions God's word. This is often where sin begins. 
Rebellion questions God's word. This is what the serpent says to the woman. Did God really say? Did God really say? The serpent didn't start by selling sin to Eve, not by convincing her how great sin is. The serpent started by questioning the creator. Did God really say? Just putting that little ounce of doubt in Eve's mind. It's like if a car salesman, uh, you know, you show up on the car salesman's lot, that car salesman doesn't have to convince you that his cars are better. All they have to do is suggest to you that your car may not be as reliable as you thought and that you might be better off getting into something else before you leave, right? This is what the serpent is doing. He's not having to convince Eve that sin is great. He just has to instill that little ounce of doubt into the woman's heart and mind. He doesn't have to make evil attractive. He just plants the seed. Sin often begins with questioning God. Uh, It often begins with questioning God's word. Uh, When life is unclear, we question God. God, why did this happen? God, where were you? Uh, Instead of going to God for answers, though, which is a very good and honorable thing, we let our questions draw us away from him which is exactly what the serpent intended to do, is to undermine God by questions. Think about the questions you might have asked God before. And I hope you have asked questions of God before. He's big enough to handle questions. Uh, The Psalms in particular are full of people asking hard questions of God. God, why did this happen? God, where were you when this happened? God, how could you let these people do this to me? God, I thought you loved us. I mean, these are really hard questions that are in the Bible that are real. The question is for you, did you ask those questions in an attempt to let God show you the truth? Or did you ask God those questions in an attempt, as the serpent did with Eve, to undermine his authority in your life? How could a good God allow suffering in the world? Why would I feel this way if God didn't want me to live this way? Now let me be clear. Questioning God is not a sin. Doubt. It is not a sin. Uh, asking hard questions, the difference we have to wonder for ourselves is where are we looking for truth? Uh, when the hard questions come, are we allowing God to answer the questions that we are asking of him? Or are we looking somewhere else for the answers? The serpent made his way cunningly into the garden but who was in charge of the garden? We well, probably would say God, right? And that's the Sunday school answer, God. But if you remember chapter 2 and chapter 1, God had actually given the humans what's called dominion over all the creatures, over everything in the garden. And so when the serpent comes in, he doesn't exert any kind of particular power over the people. All they had to do was say, actually, yes, God did really say this. And so get out. Or they didn't even have to say anything. They could have just said, see ya. But they didn't. Because when we question God, just a little seed of doubt, when we look in the wrong place for answers, can cause that to spiral. And it ultimately leads to sin. So rebellion often begins with questioning God's word. They didn't exert their authority over the creature. Instead, they engaged him in this conversation. And so equally at fault is Adam. 
We didn't really see him necessarily in the picture, except that he took and ate of the fruit that Eve gave him, except that he's with her. He's there the whole time. He's complicit in the sin that Eve engages in. He stays quiet. He's passive. He's there, and he's equally at fault, and he could have at any moment stepped in and said, but that's not true, Eve. No, let's let God answer this question. Uh, But he didn't. He allowed Eve to continue down that path of confusion. I think it's just a point of application for us as a church. When you're asking hard questions, you need people around you to point you back to truth. And you're going to face hard questions. That's why it's so vital to have a church family where you agree on what truth is, that it comes from God and it's found in his word so that whatever happens to you or whatever you do, you can have people around you who challenge you, who bring you back to reality, who ask you difficult questions, maybe even harder than the questions you're asking about God, but who point you back to God as the one who can really answer your questions. But Adam just stayed quiet. And what happened? Eve took one more step away from God. Second part uh, is that we see rebellion confuses God's word. Uh, First, it questions God's word. Second, it confuses God's word. This is what the serpent does in verse 1 as he continues. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, this is a complete twisting of what God had already said. He actually said, if you look in your Bible, if you have it there in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, he said, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden except for one. So one prohibition, then Satan twists into making Eve think that God is restrictive and oppressive. The serpent isn't the only one, though, that's guilty of twisting and confusing God's word. Look at Eve's response in verse 2 and 3. When she says, we may eat of the fruit, you know what she's doing? If you go back and look at what God actually said in in chapter 2, what she's doing is taking away from God's word. She's subtracting a key element from God's word. In fact, by just saying we may eat the fruit, she minimizes a really important part of what God says, which is the blessing of freedom to eat. God says you are free to eat. Uh, That carries with it a sense of empowerment and will But when Eve responds to the serpent, she loses that incredible blessing in her response and just says, we can eat. She's lost the power of her own freedom in this. She's taken away from what God actually says. Second thing she says is, you must not eat it or touch it. Now, this is an obvious twisting, a confusing of what God actually said, because God didn't say you shouldn't touch it. God said, don't eat from the one. And so now Eve has introduced an additional, an additional restriction to the Word of God. And now this makes her what you would probably call in our circles today a legalist, someone who applies their own rules to the Word of God, who gives more than what the Bible tells us to do and it makes those requirements on people for life with God. We're so guilty of this. We have a tradition of being guilty of legalism all the way back to Eve, but maybe even more so in the last 40 or 50 years. We've made so much of rules in the church. Everything's about rules. And then there was like kind of a pendulum swing where people were saying, well, it's not about rules at all. It's about relationship. But really where the truth is, is right in the middle, is that in a relationship with God, God sets boundaries that aren't just for our restriction, but they're for our good. I was thinking about 
we have a dog without a fence. And uh, we let the dog in the backyard, and it just, before we know it, it's gone. You know, and then we're, our neighbors probably think we're hilarious because all they hear is, every day is, Jet, Jet, Jet. You know, we're just all out there screaming his name. And they're probably like, why don't you build a fence? Here's the deal. If, if I was to build a fence to give that dog a healthy boundary so that it doesn't get run over the car, the twisting of that would have been the serpent coming in and saying, you really don't care about that dog. Can you believe that? Put a fence around that dog. You know what? You're oppressing that dog. This is not what God is doing at all, right? It's a twisting. It's a confusing of what God has actually said. It's you must not eat it, not you must not eat it or touch it. We don't need to add to it. And then finally she says, you'll die. And that sounds really similar to what God said, but... In chapter 2, verse 17, we see the consequence is a little more certain than that, with the word certain being the key. God says, on that day you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. But Eve says, you'll die. What happens? You'll die. No, 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 Eve, you can't soften the consequence of sin. God said you will certainly die. That's something you can take to the bank. It's not something that you can begin to doubt. When sin enters the picture, it means certain death. This is exactly what the Bible will say from beginning to end. The wages of sin is death. That's the book of Romans in the New Testament. This is what God said. This is what God means. We can't soften it. But this is what our culture does constantly, right? We go, God, I, mean, I don't know. God really, dying, that's a, that's a pretty big, uh, uh, you know, God loves us, you know, right? Why would he sentence us to death? I mean, it's just a mistake here and there. It's just something that, uh, you know, I didn't even really mean to make that mistake. And you're saying that God is going to kill me? Well, we brought death onto ourselves because we knew the good boundary that God created for us. And so, yes, we are guilty of sin, which means impending death. And so Eve kind of softens the consequence, which only spirals this movement towards sin. She confuses God's word and goes one step further to contradict God's word. Now, this is where the enemy steps in and knows that it's go time. The hook is in the mouth and it's ready to be set, all right? He's gotten Eve to question. He's gotten Eve to confuse God's word. Now it's time to contradict what God said, to blatantly deny it. My brother and I were young. Uh, we used to do this thing where, because we really love each other, where we would say something positive about the other one uh, and then go, not. You know, did you ever do that? Like, hey, man, that was a great shot in your soccer game. Not. <laughs> uh, does that sound familiar, mom and dad? Yeah. We used to do that all the time. Um, this is exactly what the serpent does here. If you look at the literal translation of in verse 4, when the serpent says, no, you won't die, what he's actually saying in the Hebrew there is, not. God said you'll die. Not. You won't die. He's blatantly denying what God had said to be true. He's contradicting it. It's a total 180, a total contradiction, denying the consequences of sin at all. So Eve, we saw, maybe was softening the consequences. Now the enemy, the serpent, comes in and just totally, completely denies the consequences. 
Well, God's word in chapters 1 and 2 is an indication, if you remember, of his rule and reign over all things, that when God speaks, things happen. It also was a way that we identify how God relates to the world. So it is about his rule and reign over all of creation, but it's also about his relationship with creation and especially people. So to contradict God's word is to rebel against God, against his rule over all things as sovereign, but also it's to reject a relationship with him, which is in itself the most severe consequence that any person can ever endure. Ultimately, what leads to the reality of eternity without God separated from him. So this is the beginning of that. Uh, Sin always has a consequence. You cannot remove consequence from sin. They are not mutually exclusive. They always go together. To choose sin, to rebel against God, is to reject a relationship with him and to reject his rule over all things. And even just to not be in a relationship with God is the ultimate consequence. Everything else is secondary. And so it has to have a consequence. It can't be removed from consequence. But this is the lie that we have become increasingly susceptible to. I was hanging out with Pastor Andrew last week over on our Lombie campus, and he said to me, sin without consequences is the lie of our day. That this is the trap we all fall into, right? You do you. Hey, let me live my truth. How about this one? If it feels right to me, who cares what anyone else thinks? You're starting to find some familiarity in our world today? It's the false premise of life with the dire consequence of death. But we're being sucked into this lie. And it's a pattern that we've seen from the very beginning as the first predator enters the Garden of Eden to move humans from a life of no shame to a life full of shame, from innocence to guilt. And so here is Eve. Lies have taken root. Beside her is Adam, quietly in the background. Lies taking root as rebellion begins to form in their hearts. And they start to take it into their own hands. Leads us to the Fourth thing, that rebellion justifies itself. Rebellion justifies itself. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. The serpent's contradiction wasn't just about not dying. It was about convincing Eve that she was missing out on something God was withholding from her. That somehow God would not want her to have something. Even though the reality of creation and the blessing of the garden of paradise is that God was giving them everything. And so here, the enemy, the serpent, is saying, God might be withholding something from you. Verse 5 says this, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, from our point of view, if we've read chapters 1 and 2, this is kind of like watching a scary movie at the movie theater. We're going like, no, don't open the closet door. Like, you know what's behind that door, right? From our perspective, we see it. We're, we're going, Eve, you don't need to become like God. He already made you like him in his image. Eve, 
You already have knowledge of good and evil. You know that good is to enjoy everything God has given you, and evil is to disobey the one boundary that God put in your life. You know this. You know, uh, Eve, that this is where things will go wrong. Eve, you've heard that this is where death will enter your experience, that you will not be able to be freely open in a pure relationship with your husband, that it's going to divide not only you from God, but you from others. We're saying, Eve, don't do it. Don't get it. But Eve has already become susceptible to the lies that have been introduced, to question God's word, to confuse God's word, and then ultimately the contradiction of God's word that came to her. This is the root of sin. What happens next is that Eve buys the lie that she has the ability to decide for herself what is right and wrong. I mean, this is really what the serpent is doing. He's saying, yeah, Eve, this, this free will that God's given you, uh, there's more to that. You don't have to submit to God. Don't you want to decide for yourself what's right and wrong? Don't you have your own moral compass? I mean, surely all these things that God has said aren't totally true. I mean, he loves you, right? And here Eve is taking this deception as it turns to rebellion, and she grasps the fruit. We're saying don't do it, Eve. She says in verse 6, as the anatomy of rebellion becomes more human, she says in verse 6, look at it with me. The woman saw the tree was good for food. It was delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and then gave some to her husband who also ate. The anatomy of rebellion takes a real human shape here. Do you see what she did? She looked at the tree and she decided for herself, yeah, it's good. looks good. looks good to eat. Uh, she saw uh, that it was desirable. It was delightful. As everything was that God created, right? It was all good. Very good indeed, as chapter 1 ends. And then she saw there's wisdom there. That there might be something she could know that she didn't already know. Well, I want you to think about those three things as rebellion takes human shape. And flip all the way almost to the other end of your Bible, where one of Jesus' disciples wrote a letter to some Christians. 1 John chapter 2. This is what John writes in verse 16. He says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions, or some translations say the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Do you see the parallel here? Uh, Eve looks at the tree and says, it looks good for food. It's the lust of the flesh, right? I'm a little hungry. I could use that. And then secondly, she sees that it's delightful. It's the lust of the eyes. Like, how could God make something beautiful and then not allow me to partake, right? It's the lust of the eyes are taking over. And then ending finally with the pride of life. That if there's wisdom out there to be had, 
I better have it. The pride of one's possessions, First John said, which is the same. That if there's something that I don't have access to, then I'll do whatever it takes to go get it. And here we see in Genesis, not just what happened in our history, but what happens to us over and over and over again. This is how Satan always works in temptation against us. He works from the outside in. He puts something outside of us that we first we look at and go, actually, that, that doesn't seem that bad. And then we see, you know, actually, it seems kind of really good. And you know what? It might even like add to my life where I might even be able to feel good about the, you know, some, I can do something that really makes me feel good finally for once. I've been serving everybody else, been doing things for other people, and now finally I get something for me, right? And we see this pattern emerge in our lives over and over again, the pride of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's the same thing that happened here to Eve. It's the trap of justifying our sin to ourselves. That I know it's probably wrong, but I mean, it looks good, so it must be good, right? I bet it'll taste good, so it must be good, right? It'll make me feel good for a moment, so it ought to be okay. And we break God's boundaries that he set up for our good. If it feels good, do it. This is the, the, the next layer of the lie that we've all been sold from our enemy, the serpent. So rebellion justifies itself. Finally, rebellion covers up. Rebellion covers up. This happens every time. You know you've done something wrong when you are caught and you try to cover it up. This is how life goes. So Adam and Eve have swallowed the forbidden fruit. Uh, when was the last time you got in trouble? Uh, adults, I mean, it may be a little bit longer of a road. You might have to think back to the last time you got in trouble. Do you know what happens when you're caught in something and you get in trouble and you're about to be confronted? Did you know that your body has a physiological reaction to this? You think about what it might be? It's the gulp. You see it kind of like, uh, you know, exaggerated in comics and cartoons. And, but you know you're about to be confronted and you go, <laughs> it's like swallowing the fruit all over again. We know we're in the wrong. We're about to be faced, so what are we going to do about it? And you have this moment that's like the moment where you go, uh-oh. And then that's followed quickly by the moment where you go, how can I get out of this? What can I say or do to avoid the punishment that's going to come from this? Well, this is exactly what the first humans did. Verse 7 says their eyes were opened. That's what they wanted, right? Isn't that what the serpent said? Your eyes will be opened. But now that they could see, shame caused them to no longer want to be seen. Uh, Abraham Curavilla, uh, who's at Southern Seminary, he's a professor of preaching. Uh, he's going to be here next week preaching uh, right here on our campus. And I'm, I'm so thrilled about that. But he said in his commentary on Genesis, uh, they wanted to be like God. Now they don't even want to be in his presence. So they attempted the first cover-up. Anybody on TikTok or Instagram or uh, if you are, you've probably or Facebook, you've probably seen these videos that people create where people are doing awkward things and there's this voice in the background that's going, nobody's going to know, nobody's going to know, and then another voice whispers, they're all going to know. Have you seen that one? Uh, I had to look it up and watch it. I just, it popped into my mind from a video I saw a while back. This is what Adam and Eve do, that they first took leaves from the fig tree, fig tree to hide from one another. 
Uh, this was the result, right? They realized the uh-oh moment. Now, what are we going to do about it? Well, first is I'm looking at you, and I used to look at you with uh, no shame. You used to look at me, and I didn't feel shame. And now there's something between us. So let's do whatever we can to fix this. So we're going to cover up ourselves. And they're thinking, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know. And then they hear God walking in the garden toward them. Verse 8. And they realize quickly that their cover-up is not going to be good enough. They need to have more. And so then they hid from God among the trees. This is what we do. This is our instinctual reaction when we realize we're in the wrong, is to try to fix it ourselves, to try to cover it up, that maybe we won't get caught. But when we do get caught, is there any way I can get out of this? This is how rebellion works. You've seen it in your life over and over because it happened first here to our first parents. Whenever there's a scandal in sports, or politics, or church. Yes, scandals happen in church. It's not just the action that got them into the scandal that is so wrong, is it? It's also the cover-up. And there's always an attempted cover-up. It's never okay to do that, is it? We know this from watching the news on a daily basis. The cover-up is our instinctual reaction, and it never works. So here's a pretty bleak picture. Rebellion against God. The paradise garden lost forever. We'll talk more about what happens from this point forward next week. But at this point, this is when humanity's default experience of the world begins to be cursed. It's gone from blessing to curse. Can you imagine the weight of Adam and Eve and how they felt But here's the beautiful news, that despite our rebellion against God, the rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end is the story of how God never stops pursuing humanity to get them back. In fact, right here in this passage, which describes the anatomy of rebellion, there's also a few things that help us see the anticipation of redemption. Now, these aren't more more points of the sermon. I just want to point your attention to a few things. The first is that Adam is there. Uh, We also often give a bad rap to Eve, but Adam's right there. Uh, He's complicit in this. He's just as sinful in this whole choice than than Eve is. The Apostle Paul in his letters would acknowledge that Eve was wrong, that she was tempted. Uh, He would also acknowledge that Adam was wrong. In fact, Romans talks about this. The first Adam being the first man who engaged in sin is in the wrong. And that set off a sequence of events where every single person after that would be cursed by sin and its consequences. And so we have Adam there. But if you keep reading your Bible, especially into the book of Romans, what you'll find is that he's not the last Adam. That there's another Adam coming, a better Adam. One that, just like us, has tried to live perfectly, except none of us have ever succeeded in that. Only one has, and his name was Jesus Christ. He came to the earth as a man, God himself, came to earth to live among us as one of us so that he could live perfectly, fulfilling the law of God, becoming a worthy sacrifice so that he could be lifted up on a cross, punished for things he had not done, but taking the sin of the world, our sin upon himself and paying the, pe- the penalty, the debt that we owed so that by faith and belief in him, we could have freedom from the curse, freedom from the consequence of sin. This is the last Adam, Jesus Christ. So the first Adam, he didn't get it right. None of us have gotten it right as the other Adams, but Jesus did. 
And it points us to him. Listen to what Romans chapter 5 says. I want you to see this on the screen because it is so poignant, important for our faith. Starting in verse 17, chapter 5, it says, Since by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So then as through one trespass or sin or rebellion, there's condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, speaking of Jesus' death on the cross, there is justification leading to a life for everyone. Just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We can anticipate Jesus from Genesis chapter 3. It's not all bleak. God pursued humanity. The second is just kind of an interesting word study that you might want to do on your own time, which is to trace the word trees through the creation story and into Genesis 3. Did you see how many times trees are referred to from God planting trees to growing trees to making trees bear fruit to putting the humans among the trees to commanding them about the tree of life, that there's a really, really good tree that you can partake in and live forever, but there's one tree that's not good for you. Uh, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't take from that one tree. That's your only restriction. It's the only boundary. And then even the theme of trees continued as the humans take fruit from the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then they took leaves and twigs from the fig tree to cover themselves and then hid among the trees. It just follows here in this story. You go, what's up with the trees? Well, I think it points to another tree, the tree that Jesus would be crucified on to pay for the penalty of sin. Now, how do we know this? The trees were a, a sign of the curse after this point. Isaiah would talk about this. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. But the tree doesn't stop there. The tree shows up at the end as well. Revelation chapter 22, there's the tree of life again at the center of the new creation when God remakes all things. It's there providing life for everyone. Everything flows from it. And so while trees in the first, in the beginning, became a sign of the curse, Jesus would then hang on a tree to reverse the curse so that trees again could give us life. Just a cool theme that points us to the reality of eternity. Genesis chapter 3. It's not all bleak. God pursues humanity. We don't have to fix ourselves. This is the good news. But we often try. This is the application of verse 7. As the humans take fig leaves and cover themselves, this is what we do. We turn to good works to make ourselves right with God, to cover up our faults, to take care of our failures, but it never works. The cover-up never works, does it? It's never good enough. Even with the coverings of fig leaves, the humans tried to hide in the woods. We have to face this reality that we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot cover up our own sin. Isaiah chapter 64 describes our righteous efforts, our good works, as filthy rags to God. When was the last time you did like a plumbing project and you had dirty rags at the end? Can you imagine trying to make those into your clothes? 
and presenting yourself before the king of the universe, that's what good works do for us. But God does something else. Isaiah would say also in chapter 61 that because of the sacrifice of God, that he would have the ability to clothe us in robes of righteousness. And we know this comes from Jesus Christ. It's literally a story of rags to robes because of Jesus Christ. And Genesis 3 points us to that picture that the leaves were insufficient. Your good works are insufficient. But God, in his all-sufficient sovereignty, has made a way for you to be clothed in righteousness, completely covered, your sin paid for and washed away, to be presentable before him again, robed in righteousness because of his sacrifice, his work, not our own. Mac Brunson said this. Uh, I mentioned this several weeks ago in our last sermon series, and I told you we'd be coming back, so here's the, the second time for this quote from Mac Brunson. If you cover your sin, God will uncover it. But if you uncover your sin, God will cover it. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, through the rest of the Bible, the heart of God is to reverse the curse, to pursue you, to free you from the consequence of sin. In verse eight, we see God walking in the garden. He's moving toward the humans in love. He's calling them out of hiding with one simple question. The question is, where are you? Where are you? God knew where they were. He knew exactly where they were. He knew which tree they were hiding behind. It wasn't a mystery to him, but he was moving toward them in love. He was calling them out of hiding in order to begin his story of redemption, to help them move from their insufficient coverings to the ultimate covering that he would provide through the sacrificial son, the Messiah. This is where the rest of the Bible points. And so the question today is, where are you? Are you questioning God? You're asking tough questions? Look to him for truth. Are you stuck in a cycle of sin? Are you rebelling against God right now? Are you running as far away from him as possible right now? Are you carrying the burden of your guilt and shame? Are you hiding from God? Are you keeping something hidden from him? Where are you? God has come towards you today. I hope you can see the pattern of your sin, but more than that, I hope you can see the anticipation of redemption in your story. Because when you uncover your sin, God will forgive you. He'll cover it because of Jesus Christ, and he'll begin his story of redemption in you. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. We see our story written all over Genesis 3 that we are rebellious that we question you, we've, we've taken your word out of context, we've confused it, we've twisted it, we've contradicted it with the way we live. We've tried to justify ourselves. God, we've tried to cover ourselves up through our own good works, but you know the truth. We're just desperate, broken, sinful people in need of a Savior. And from the beginning, God, you planned Jesus to be our Savior. My prayer today is that anyone who has sin covered in this room would uncover it before you and allow your cleansing work to happen in their lives 
for you to clothe them not with their own filthy rags, but with your robes of righteousness because of Jesus Christ. To launch us into a new life, an eternal life, in anticipation of the tree of life, which will be our good and our provision and our purpose for all eternity as you recreate the earth again. Thank you for redemption. Make redemption our story today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.